in a drink podcast randomly alongside dr ellen wall how's it going pretty good coming to you from my new digs in south florida there you go there you go everything's happening in south florida including dr energy now that's that's true there you go i uh is it it is so freaking hot here i was about to ask is it hot there because it is we have we had a good may and i think june started off okay and now let's see here i can pull it up real quick it's i don't know starting soon we've got basically 100 plus days coming without sight unless uh, into sight unless something has changed so yeah uh, okay it's not that bad i don't think it ever really gets that bad here um but it's just like you know the lows are in like the high 70s low 80s yeah. and it gets to like 90 and then it rains all the time and anyway i mean it's just hot and humid and what do you expect yeah so today's 105 else. tomorrow's <laughs> 103 yeah it cools off wednesday thursday friday but then starting saturday it does not get below the high at least 100 and for the foreseeable forecast so we're just we're in misery so power demand in texas is high i call this montana moving season this is the time of the year where i consider moving to montana and re-evaluating my life choices so that's mm. coming, that's coming soon so montana's hot these days i'm mean, not hot like hot temperature wise i mean like it's a very hot place to move mm. personally yeah. i would i would recommend wyoming wyoming there you go okay wyoming is okay northern moving season however, <laughs> however mm. you want to phrase that okay um all falls on uncertainty about chinese economic growth speaking of moving and shaking and doing things the economic demand it's just not there is it ellen is it not there i mean or is this just like weird data you know i, I can't decide whether this is something that people think is happening i mean it's uncertainty about chinese economic growth it's not like economic growth in china is cratering Right. It's like we're not really sure what's going to happen in China. So it says this person, this this oil analyst said that China's economy is navigating through powerful headwinds. That's not the same as saying China's economy is experiencing a downturn or, you know, is only growing at two percent or. Right. You know, it's just like navigating headwinds. I mean, don't, aren't all economies navigating headwinds? I, I'm, I'm a little unsure as to why. The price of oil is acting so much based on China and these like maybes. I mean, th this person talks about the, the property market and retail sales and industrial output came in below expectation. How much below expectation? But wasn't that the whole basis for the market coming into this year was Chinese growth, Chinese growth, Chinese growth. And so yeah. if you said that's what's going to bolster in even the price last year, it seemed some on some level was baked into the great Chinese reopening that hasn't happened. And so if so the issue is just really the expectations weren't met. That's probably closer. And so, I mean, I, I don't know, but I mean, you, if we go back and listen to the shows at the end of the year, they were talking about, you know, China opening, China opening, and then begin the year, China opening, China opening, and then China's opened and it's just not. I'm not a smart man, so I don't know, but it felt like there was kind of this perhaps old man wasn't as strong as people felt it. or Perhaps old man wasn't as strong as the price indicated last year. 
and there was a baking into Chinese demand to help pick up some of the slack. And so when you get to this year, you didn't have as strong as demand as you thought you were going to have globally, or you knew you weren't going to have maybe. But then you also have a Chinese demand that's not meeting the predicted ex- expectation. At some point, you, the, the price has to readjust. Yeah. So maybe it was over exuberant last year. And so we're just having a slight correction. Slight. <laughs> I mean, it's down, what, $20? Okay. <laughs> Something like that. Well, um, then the other thing that's um, a little nuts is, um, you know, like, do we really, I mean, if China's demand situation, or if, if China's economic situation was really that bad, couldn't we expect the Chinese government to employ some kind of stimulus? I mean, yeah. like, the, 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 like, like, this is what people are basing their trades on. Global road traffic has been declining. Mm-hmm. But why are we not just, I mean, again, I'm a simpleton here, but why are we not just basing it upon how the, the Saudis are reacting to the, the Chinese? Like, to me, that's the, I don't know, I've been saying it for a while now, and I feel like I'm a, like I'm missing something. Like, like yeah, okay. Um, I do also, think- Iran is exporting more oil. And, but see, okay, but like, so we have China's, like, so we're like, oh, well, fewer people are on the roads in China, and the property market isn't so great there. Retail sales, industrial operator below expectations in May, but also um, we have um, we have the fact that China's refinery throughput rose in May to its second highest total on record. So they're processing a heck of a lot of crude oil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. I- It seems we could all agree that the global economy is just not roaring or that oil production is so high, but, but it can't be oil production's high because we have OPEC cuts constantly. So OPEC's mm-hmm. cutting and it still can't stop the price from falling. Yeah. It, I mean, it has to be, I mean, again, it seems simple that the global economy is just not as strong as many had hoped it would be. Yeah, that makes sense. But um that's but how much of a correction are we going to have you You know how far how how low how low are we going here like how low can you go with this kind of thing i would guess that the concern would be as prices decline will you see some opec nations increase production because they need the money that's yeah, like uh, Iran. Well, right. Iran's technically exempt from all the OPEC stuff, but it yeah. Well, that's a good point. Saudi Arabia's going to cut, cut, but they want the money. Is Iran? I mean, sorry, is Iraq going to going to adhere to these cuts? I think you know. It's, hmm, it's a good I, question. I think I mean I brought this up a month or so ago, but if you're OPEC and you really wanted to put your foot on the neck of the U.S. producers, like now is your time. Yeah, do it. Right. Why aren't they opening the taps? Just open the tap. The price would plummet and just keep the foot on there for a year or two. And it wouldn't be the end of it, obviously, but it would just decimate the industry as we know it. But they're not doing that. And so obviously they're not concerned with that. Um, You know, kind of related is the... um, 
is this this next article, which is uh, about China's um, uh, oil storage and and how much oil they've been processing. Um, you know that they that it's, it's about this that they stored massive volumes of crude oil in May. So uh, I mean, this is China added to crude oil stockpiles at the fastest rate in nearly three years in May as robust imports outweighed near record refinery processing. So not only was China, so China's buy import was in May, China imported a huge amount of oil. It stored a huge amount of oil and it processed a huge amount of oil, I assume for both products domestically and for export. Plus apparently like Beijing was burning a huge amount of coal to like cool, cool people off because it's really hot there. But everyone still thinks the economy sucks there or it's going to suck and apparently there are some i did say in that or in that previous article that there were some um uh, economic stimulus measures that were going into place in china but i feel like people don't have any clue what's going on in china and that this is just some kind of like all-purpose excuse like could we get some buddy to come like not i mean on our podcast but like can't someone come out and like say okay this is what's happening in china can we get some real data could we get some like why why isn't the chinese government going to stand up and like say okay our industrial output is lagging we need to you know i don't know build another this you know are they going to do something about it do they feel it's bad enough to do something i just i i feel like there's a lack of information about china and that's causing a lot of this like huge it's causing a lot more financial gyrations in the oil market than there should be. Yeah. I was on a call the other day and, and the sentiment seemed to be from the people talking that the, that the economy's not ripping and roaring um, in China right now. Um, but that they did expect perhaps maybe next year things to get going. And, and kind of it, it felt like more of a, not that the economy's in trouble, but it's just taking longer to get it up and going than, People have I remember it. somebody who said that, mm. predicted that that was going to mm. happen. That's you? Weird. That's weird. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Weird. feel like nobody listened. I said it all over the place. Um, oh, well. I wasn't, I was just predicting what the, what the Saudis would say. <laughs> yeah. What do the Saudis think? <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, the other thing is, and I don't think this is going to happen tomorrow, but at some point, this deal in the U- in Ukraine's got to stop. Oh, really? No, no. I think this is going to probably go on for like ten years. War? Oh, yeah, this no. is going to be longer than Afghanistan. Oh no. Oh yeah. Oh. This war is great because no one in America gives a crap about it, so no one's facing like domestic issues at home. The U.S. government can spend however much money to send to its uh, could send to the military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. So all the big like donor, you know, they're all thrilled to be making weapons and sending them somewhere. And like you know, it's, they can always pull out Zelensky if they want to look good, you know, in D.C. circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, forever that's my war. cynical view. Forever war. It's like Ukraine. It's like over there. Mm. Well, I hope you're wrong. You're probably right, but I hope you're wrong. Okay, um, let's see here. Toyota unveils sweeping plan for new battery technology, EV innovation. All right. Toyota's got this thing figured out. Toyota. Is that what's happening? Can I just say, if this is the case, and I'm not saying it is, but I think that this makes the case that like everyone thinks that innovation has to come from some like small scrappy little startup 
But it's actually more likely that like the biggest breakthroughs are going to come from like big, well-established companies who have a lot to spend on R&D. Like, why do we always assume it's going to like that the big energy breakthroughs aren't going to come from big oil companies, you know, or the big innovation in say, now I'm not saying that this is the big battery innovation, but maybe a actual workable battery will come from a very well-established company like Toyota. Uh, You know, it just seems to be so much more possible than like Tesla. I mean, Tesla doesn't really have any tech that's so special. It just makes a car that people like. Its batteries come from like Samsung or whatever. (laughs) So what is your read on this innovation? Okay. What is my read on it? I'm not an expert, so I don't know about like whether solid state batteries are like so much better. Um, But... I think that Toyota has a good strategy, okay? So their strategy is a slow pivot to EV batteries. That has been their strategy. And I think that that's a better strategy than what we're seeing from a lot of the car makers in the US where they're like full speed ahead on pumping out EVs that people don't want to buy because the range sucks. So so I think that that's... Um, like because the the biggest issues are what Toyota is is saying long it's range and charging speed, so they claim they're going to launch their next generation lithium ion batteries in 2026 that offer longer ranges and quicker charging. I mean those are the two things that people like if you if you could triple the range of an EV it might actually be something that people would be interested in getting. If you can make it a lot faster to charge, like say 10 minutes as opposed to 40 minutes or an hour, I mean, 10 minutes is still kind of slow, but like people would deal with that. But, and also if you didn't have to charge it until for like, you know, 600 miles or more, the biggest issue they're not mentioning here is the, is the weight. And that's, that's, that I think is the third issue is, is how heavy it is. The thing is that Toyota has like and made this announcement before, basically, like it was supposed to be ready by like 2023 or 2022. And now it's 2026. So I'm not holding out that this is like going to actually come to pass. But at least they're talking about the real issues that need to be discussed Mm -hmm. when it comes to making EVs actually viable. Yeah, so. I think the average time of to the fit pump, in our like current lifestyles. I mean, right, right. So the average yeah. time of the pump, I think, is like two minutes, maybe three. So it's not it's not very long. Most right, sure. But if you can, go, some people like get out and go to the bathroom and right, clean their windshield and like. If you can go six hundred twenty-one miles on a, that's a different stop because no one goes six hundred twenty-one miles and gets out for two minutes. They got yeah. to go to the bathroom. They got a snack. Right, whatever. So. Yeah. At that, if you can get a like a normal gas tank or a full gas tank range, then you would start working in more stops that are naturally longer. It's like when we go back to Indiana, you know, we'll go, you know, normally like two hours, we go to the Bucky's, we all go to the bathroom, we get our Bucky's and we try to make it, you know, the the rest of the four hours. Yeah. Right. Um, Then, so we're just kind of planning. We know we have to stop once. We just stop there. So so on a 600 mile trip, you have to stop once. I mean, some people more than once. So yeah, this becomes where 10 minutes becomes more palatable because you're anticipating more 10 minute stops with that kind of miles. Uh, exactly. kind of miles. I, I think that's that. Yeah. If you pull that off. Then you do have something that is viable, assuming it lasts long enough. And you know, all those things that, that, that have to be baked into it. Right. And, and, and I, you know, because I think it, what people are really seem to be trying to do with the EVs is they're just trying to 
fit the EVs into the the internal combustion engine lifestyle, right? They're like, this is replaced, like you can swap out your internal combustion engine car for this EV and use it in basically all the same ways. And if that's the model that we're going for, then you've got to solve these problems. If you can convince people that they should accept or adopt a totally different model, then you know, maybe the current state of EVs could be workable. So like, for example, say we replaced all of our infrastructure, like our highway infrastructure with, um, I don't know, say like you're driving your car and you could like latch in and it's like a rail and it like transports you or it's almost like getting on the auto train, except you can get off wherever you want or something like that. And then you then you get off and you're in a new city and then you can drive around in your EV. Well, then you may not need a car that can go 600 miles before it needs a charge. You can get by with a 200 mile range because you're only really using your battery when you're driving like in the city. But that's a totally different model. And that's not, I think, the model that anyone seems, you know, no one seems willing to really, it's like they're trying to convince us to use cars that don't fit the model of driving that we have right now. And that's what's really frustrating. Or they're trying to convince us that the current kind of EVs do fit that model when they just don't. So, um, so yeah, so I think either like you either reimagine the model of how people use cars, or you've just got to make the EVs basically like internal combustion engines. Now that leaves aside the whole issue of trucking, which is like a totally different thing. And I got to say, like, I really don't see how you can do trucking. You can keep the same model of trucking with EVs just because of the weight, unless there's these like solid state batteries are magically like way, uh, way lighter. Yeah. Maybe not magically, chemically. (laughs) I don't know. Right, right. And I don't know, maybe a battery expert can come on because yeah. the towing and the, the pulling, that would, you know, I think to your point, that's where you go. And maybe it's just imaginary. I just feel like if you have a battery powered vehicle, you start doing that, it just goes down faster than if you have a oh, yeah. gas or diesel. Maybe that's not true. Maybe someone can talk about how that works, but it just feels like that's the case. But for cars in and out, you know, um, you know, mid-size sedans or whatever. Yeah, there's, there's probably not a lot of weight variance or or stuff like that that's going on um, um, in those. And I, the other thing I, I would think, shouldn't the EV, would it have an advantage if it's idling in traffic over the gas burner? Presumably, I mean, from a pollution standpoint, there is, but I don't know, does it just like kind of turn off? Yeah, I don't know. I just wondered, you know, if you're yeah. in cities and you know, you could make up if you're if you're Good idle. question. Yeah, you could sit there, maybe have a little bit more more efficient. But didn't they once have this idea that like you were gonna like continuously charge your car because like the roads were gonna be some kind of like char like oh yeah wireless battery yeah yeah we thing. About yeah on the show one time yeah uh, let's get my AirPods to connect and we'll talk about that <laughs> yeah exactly like, AirPods yeah well, could you imagine like the all the like problems connecting. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh gracious. Okay, we got time for one more quick story. New land grab by old giants is deep underground. Wall Street Journal opens to store carbon dioxide. Um, this whole permitting process—I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. What do you think? Are you? Do you want a carbon dioxide like underground receptacle near you? Is this going to be like you know we don't want nuclear waste? Is this all going to be in Yucca Mountain? Well. 
wouldn't it be potentially good for the plants though? Like if it seeps up. I don't know. How did they do this? Let's see. It, oh, it's deep. It's deep down there and you've got a concrete cap it. It's a if it's what so I'm, then it's not for the plants, right? So this guy, he had porous rock out, under his farm. Right. There's the company proposed to store carbon dioxide. Let's see. So he leased us. So funny. So he, this guy in his straw cowboy hat ended up leasing. Wow. So, so <laughs> this is great. Occidental Petroleum offered him money to lease his land for carbon storage. Then Chevron did. Mm-hmm. And apparently ConocoPhillips and ExxonMobil want, want land nearby too. So he ended up going he got a bidding war between Chevron and Occidental. He ended up going with Chevron, but some of his neighbors went with Occidental. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so how exactly are they going to do this? And is it safe? I mean, he can lease his land. Okay, wow, yeah, you're right. It is way down there. Way so down. they have a compression and dehydration facility. Compressed CO2 is piped into an injection well. The CO2 is injected deep below sources of drinking water to avoid contamination because God forbid you should have any carbon dioxide in your drinking water because, um, gee, what's water made of? Uh, it's made of hydrogen and two oxygens. Okay, so um, it layers in permeable rock, and then there's a porous rock layer. But you have to drill through the impermeable rock, so it's obviously not perfect. And then they're going to put it in the porous rock, and oh, and so are we going to get more earthquakes? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't this sound like, I mean. I didn't think about that. Yeah, more earthquakes. Um. Let's see. So where are they doing it's it? It's going to seep out though, right? Like you can't stop it. At some point it's just going to seep out. And so. I don't know. Is it, is it, is it put into a solid state or is it a gas? I guess it's a gas still. And, and then, yeah, I don't know. This, it just feels like these are one of these things that it costs a lot of money. And then three years from now we go, oh, well, we didn't see that coming. And it's like, yeah, sure. Okay. Here's so, Dean coming it, in. So go ahead. No, I just, it was, um, it just seems really interesting. And like, is this the same kind of area where they're also doing oil drilling? Like, what if they find like, oh, there's like oil down there we can frack for. Let's frack for the oil first, and then we'll put the CO2 in. Okay. And here we have longtime guest, but <laughs> now at Texoga, Chief Economist, Absolutely. Dr. Dean Foreman. Texoga is, of course, a Texas Oil and Gas Association. Dr. Foreman, it is good to have you in the great state of Texas. Are you melting yet? <laughs> Not quite yet. I will physically be there in August, so I okay. have a little bit of reprieve. Okay. Yeah, you're a lucky dog because it is hot. It's hot. <laughs> it's not gotten hot. Of course, you're coming in August is not going to help you much. So it is good to have you on. And we have on our Texas Economics and Energy in a Global Context Quarterly Research Report for Q2 2023. That is a mouthful. We all know I'm not a good speaker, so thank you for saying <laughs> that. we got to shorten that down. Well, give us a little high level of uh, what's in the report, and we'll dig in. So uh, you know, we've had these great conversations for four or five years now, and a lot of what I've done is covered the global and U.S. economies and then delve down into the state level selectively. And now on behalf of the Texas Oil and Gas Association, I'm putting a much more Texas flavor or at least consistently trying to monitor what's happening at the ground level in Texas financially, 
operationally so that it all ties together from a nationwide perspective, a global perspective, and now a Texas perspective. And the thing that really pops, and it may not be so obvious when you look out and see prices where they are, um, look at the daily headlines and the way financial markets are reacting, but the markets actually are short. And a lot of what's been happening has been responding to monetary policy and economic uncertainties, not necessarily to the supply-demand balance. So when we look at the inventories, when we look at the production levels, you know, production has been assumed by official estimates to zoom back toward 13 million barrels per day of crude oil this year in the United States, but it ain't there. And what we're looking at is the production levels where the share that's coming from Texas of both oil and natural gas has risen this year. A lot of states aren't playing. In other words, they, are, they don't have the same activity levels that they did pre-pandemic. And the growth levels coming back are different. So when we look at the equilibrium of, you know, it's the old economist joke of, you know, you're stranded on an island, you've got a can of food, how do you open it? And the economist joke is the economist assumes a can opener, right? And we can't just assume this is magically going to happen when we look at building up production across the U.S. and saying it's going to participate in a global recovery to meet by official EIA or International Energy Agency estimates of record high demand next year, coupled with a record high amount of economic activity next year. Even if growth is slowing, the absolute amounts are so strong, where is it going to come from? So Texas is more important than ever. That's one of the messages that are coming out of this. And we really have to keep our eye on the ball from a policy perspective and an industry perspective about how this is actually moving along. Us in Texas didn't need to hear that we're more important than ever, but we're, we're glad to hear it. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's good. We, we knew that down here in Texas and uh, it's good to hear you say it. I mean, you got the fancy titles and the degrees. And so it's always good to hear, to hear that. Um, it, it, we were talking earlier about oil prices, you know, and so as on Monday, the 19th, WTI is at 71, Brent's at 76. It seems that we, on some level, we'll talk about economic, economic recovery, that it's just not there yet. And I heard you say that the anticipation for next year is that it's going to be there. So when do we see that turnover according to the, projections or estimates that you're looking at? So let's separate out the economic effects from the financial effects. And in my view, the, the market has been structurally short from a global basis. We've seen this in the inventory levels. We've seen between the end of the first quarter and where we are in the second quarter, still a pretty big drawdown in terms of US commercial crude inventories on top of lower strategic reserves as well. That's a summary statistic in and of itself that says, on net, you're demanding and exporting more than you're producing. So as that's happening, why is OPEC then cutting, right? Well, each time the Federal Reserve contemplates a rate hike, and each time it credibly has factored in, that's increased economic uncertainty. And you've seen financial markets basically whack-a-mole and bash oil prices back down. That, that's the primary driver really since last year that's been driving these prices down. And if you go back even to last May, and Alan, this is probably uh, your bailiwick in terms of reading the, the tea leaves on OPEC's interpretation of it, but going back to the cuts last year, they were basically saying that one of the reasons that they wanted to to go in, chase speculators out of the market, 
provide some potential downside in their view to where oil prices could go was basically to offset the effects of a lot of the monetary policy from the Fed and other central banks around the world. So we're getting to the point, though, and the market celebrated and you've seen prices bounce back up from the high 60s to the low 70s per barrel as the Fed basically decided to go on hold. If the Fed doesn't and can't really continue to raise rates much further or has a need to, given that inflation's been coming down, this historically kind of with the inverse relationship that's existed between the strength of the dollar and where oil prices have gone, it kind of says you know, that, that it's a source of potential strength instead of, instead of a detriment as we've seen from the last year or so. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. I, I, you know, I've often thought about like the relationship between the dollar and, and oil and, you know, it, it, everyone always like has this idea like, Oh, the dollar does this and oil does that. Um, I don't know. I've always kind of thought about it a little bit differently, I guess, than, than most people, because I've always thought about it in terms of, okay, well, if you're a company, if you're a country that's producing oil, you need to, and, and the, you know, the dollar changes value, you need to either sell your oil for more dollars, say you need to then sell your oil for more dollars in order to get more in your own currency eventually. And so, so I've always kind of thought about it from that perspective, but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about that, that see this as OPEC actually reacting to the Fed policy. Um, I kind of wonder if anyone in the Biden administration has ever thought about that, because they seem to think that like it's all kind of Saudi Arabia taking it out for American policy, but no one's ever brought up the fact that it that yeah it could be policy based. It's just um, not the the political policy or the geopolitical <laughs> policy. It's it's the monetary policy, um, which is also really interesting because the Saudi real is pegged to the dollar. So you know they they've got all sorts of stuff uh, tied up in that. Um, you know, it's, it's a totally different interpretation that I think is is definitely worth uh, worth considering. Um, one of the things that we were talking about um, was what's going on in China because it seems like everyone wants to blame yeah. some sort of like China China not coming in, you know, Chinese economic data not coming in as high as they expected for why oil prices are going down. And yet, if you look at the data for May, China imported huge amounts of crude oil, put lots of it into storage, but also had like almost record refinery runs in May. So, you know, it's kind of like, what what's going on there? So it, it's been a roller coaster ride because we started this year with really sandbagged expectations for China. And then starting you know, into January, it zoomed back and suddenly we went from really low economic expectations to factoring in a really healthy recovery over the course of the year for China. And oil went up in tandem with that. But then as we raised rates, as as you said, more uncertainty came into play about, well, it hasn't exactly zoomed back, but it's kind of wait for it in the sense that it always was going to be something that was picking up over the course of the year. And we are seeing it, don't get me wrong. The the other thing is the pulse, and to go back to your point about you know why it is that the economic policy matters so much is that these prices for oil are getting established in financial markets, and I, I would say ten years ago I didn't appreciate how much this is the case, but over the course of the last five to ten years, really understanding how the prices get established when a major company wants to lift oil out of Saudi Arabia or any other OPEC nation at official selling prices, they're going to contract to something that's a differential off of 
you know, Brent or Amon or another marker, but plus or minus the outcome of the financial market game. So that's why, despite you know, whether it's policy directly causing it, it's all responding to the same economic fundamentals and the way it's playing out. As it comes into the marketplace, we're seeing now, though, where the path of the price setting has kind of stabilized. You know, we're seeing now the ability of um, the interest rates to flow through in a way where the market responding to it real time is now affecting the speculative level that's going into determining that, as well as the, the actual physical flows that are coming out of it. Very interesting. Um, uh, could you talk to us a bit more about the natural gas analysis that you've done? Because it's really, really interesting and, and kind of the role of Texas in um, in what you're seeing for natural gas. Thanks. So we're doing this first at the ground up as a call it a rig pulse model, but calibrating to EIA's drilling productivity report. And what you see there first is that production in Texas from an oil and gas perspective has in this quarter by EIA estimates and by our own reached all-time highs. So that's point one. Point two is that when we start looking at how much you know, is flowing and how much is going into global markets. I think one of the knee-jerk things that you would read is that, well, you know, storage levels in Europe are seasonally high, storage levels have been healthy in the United States, prices are depressed, and we've had $2 handles, you know, $2 to $3 per million BTU kind of prices domestically at Henry Hub for much of the, you know, really since end of first quarter. And nothing has seemed to change that, despite the fact that Russian production hasn't come back onto the world market. And by the way, unlike oil, where Russian production has been kind of fungible and able to move and find different markets, give or take logistical capabilities, that's not the case for, oil, for, for natural gas, because the liquefied natural gas can still go, but everything that was going by pipeline, mainly to Europe, 80% of that is gone. And the remaining 20% of it that is still going to Europe well, that still goes through Ukraine, so that could be cut off. European gas storage levels are seasonally high. They're higher than they are normally this time of year due to having an unseasonably warm winter coupled with a cool spring. So they haven't burned through it. But just like this last week, we saw a huge upward move in prices at Henry Hub. Uh, these things seasonally can change. It remains a very seasonal and regional gas market around the world. And from a U.S. perspective, again, as Texas is gaining share, Texas is more important, it becomes a chicken and egg issue where you start to see if the prices pull off, how do you incentivize the production at $2 per million BTU? In the Permian Basin, a lot of it's associated gas. So hmm, $70 per barrel, oil, that's going forward, the gas is continuing to grow, but that's less so in Appalachia and other regions that are also pipeline constrained. So Texas, again, gaining importance, this market poised in a way where we're seeing relatively subtle changes in the production levels and expectations about where things could go seasonally. Even in the last week, just the evidence that prices changed dramatically and increased you know, 20% in one week. So these things, we have to watch it and see, but right now, it's a sign that at the same, same time, we have record level exports from the United States in terms of natural gas. We have really strong production. We have really strong consumption. And despite all of that, we're still sitting under $3 per million BTU, closer to 260 to 70, actually. So 
again, watch and see what happens as we get to the shoulder season for winter and, and evidence of that. But it's really fascinating because the productivity levels have held this up. It, it's a true productivity and supply side story that's been driving the U.S. becoming increasingly important as a supplier around the world. So uh, you mentioned, you know, that, that part of what this data shows is that, um, you know, natural gas is still a seasonal and regional market. And a lot of people had talked about how, especially this crisis in Europe, was going to really kind of uh, elevate the global LNG market, and we were going to see things being priced more globally. Uh, I, it seems like what you're saying is it's not really happening. What What are your thoughts on that? On the margin, it's interconnected, right? So. You know, a good connection for natural gas prices around the world means that, you know, the U.S. is sitting under three dollars per million BTU, but Europe's currently sitting at nine or ten. So it's still a multiple, right? Because they're still short; they have to find a way to bring it. And there's no cost-effective way. They're going to get some pipeline supplies that trickle from Europe, some from North Africa, but the rest is really going to have to come in by LNG on the margin, and they're competing against Asia-Pacific markets for that. And what we saw last year was that Europe had more willingness and ability to pay than Asia did. China gave up the rights to many of the cargoes that they had contracted for out of the United States, and that's why over 70% of U.S. LNG cargoes end up going to Europe last year. And that's continued into this year, by the way, where we're still the main supplier for Europe. We're supplying more than Russia's historically supplied. That's amazing. You know, the United States into Europe is a gas supplier, despite the fact that it's going by ship. And I think the concern is that if the prices go back up, you know, how do you, from a demand perspective, have cost competitive industry that relies on natural gas through manufacturing and petrochemicals, Ger Germany's economy, for example, uh, wait and see. But right now it's not problematic actually, because with these price levels and the strong global supply, we just need to see seasonally where it goes and how long the situation can hold. And the last uncertainty is, again, coming back to your China point of, will China continue to seed cargoes and natural gas as it did last year? A lot of people speculate that China either cannot or will not do that this year because as their economy is coming back, they need natural gas for agriculture, for production, for exports. So do you think that... Um... You know that we're going to see China and some kind of just relying more on coal than and letting Europe take these natural gases and, and natural, uh, sorry, LNG cargos. Or, um, and and what do you think is going to happen if we get a really hot European summer? I mean, I, I haven't looked at the forecast, I don't know what's you know going on, but there's always that that possibility, you know, it's so hot in Europe, and you know, it's it, it can. It, do they not just get that much uh, electricity demand because they just don't have that much air conditioning? Whereas like in the US, if it's super, super hot, everyone's just blasting the air conditioning all the time. And so I'm just curious, like, like could a hot summer derail stuff or do we have to wait and see till winter? A hot summer could certainly pressure it and China's economy coming back could also pressure it. The evidence last year was that China would pick up India too, a lot more use of coal vis-a-vis -vis natural gas. Going forward, as the economy continues to grow, though, the question is, can they? In other words, if they need power, and you've looked at headlines this week, even people speculating that there could be you know, brownouts and power shortages across different parts of China as a result of not having enough supply of natural gas. So if that continues, you would expect to see they're going to do what they have to do to try to keep the economy on track. Um, that would pressure things through. And then 
I, w- I would expect the supply situation as what we've seen, the drilling activity that's there, that it's strong enough to kind of get us through the next few months here into the shoulder season. But if we go back to even normal seasonality at that point, that's where the market could be caught off by surprise because it hasn't really factored that in at this point. At least it's not evident in the price action that I've seen. Should we expect gasoline demand to increase with you coming to Texas and trying all these wonderful barbecue joints? <laughs> like, will you make a well, dent? You think? I, I will certainly make it done. I, whether it will move it, move the needle on a state level is a different matter. But I will do my part. Okay, because you know, I'm just, I'm just wondering here. You, you've been, you've been in D.C., which is whatever that place is, and now you're coming down here to the land of, you know, pretty good food from time to time, and so it's, um, it's tempting. So. Ooh, it's very tempting, and I've spent 15 years of my career in Texas, mainly you know, Dallas and Houston. This will be the first time in Austin. I, I love it. I'm looking forward to getting back. Um, having lived in Western Canada and Saudi Arabia, Florida, you know, various places and here in Washington, D.C., Texas is, is the favorite of places I've been, so I'm looking forward to it. So how many cowboy hats do you currently own? <laughs> I only have two. Only two? Okay. Okay. Do you have the like authentic Calgary one? I actually did get it at Lamels in Calgary. So yes. <laughs> yeah. I only say that because I was there too. <laughs> I, I, I went out there too and bought, bought a cowboy hat, but um, it's too hot to wear it in Florida. I agree, but I've got um, the cowboy boots from, from Houston. They're, they're not from Calgary. Okay. So, yeah. okay. All right. So we are very much looking forward to talking to you from Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we'll probably speak to you before then. Well, yeah, that's what I'm about to ask. This is a quarterly report. So will we oh, yeah. have you quarterly, monthly? What's your, let our listeners know when they could expect to hear Dr. Foreman again. Well, thanks. We're going to start putting out a lot more content on Texoga's website, Texoga, www.texoga.org. And you know, even this morning, we issued a press release with an economic report that's more some of what you've seen here on the Texas economy. Later this month, the full quarterly version will come out as an outlook. The other thing that's new is we're going to have a Texoga chart book. So it's a lot of the things that are sort of my familiar favorites of things that I watch. It'll serve our members. It'll serve those, you know, like you all who are very interested in the analysis of different things. If you look at that, and that'll come out weekly, you'll see, um, you know, the commentary of different trends that are emerging. I'm going to try to feature one chart per week out of that, and you know highlight things that I think are important from both a U.S. and a Texas perspective. Right now, the, the thing that we've talked about here, the wellhead production, the rig pulse modeling of that, um, you know, a subtle point to you know, give one of the things away on that is that decline rates have changed. And this isn't obvious from a market perspective, right? But what has happened is historically production used to grow a lot faster. We went through a downturn. It's growing again to record levels in Texas, but it's growing more slowly than it has historically. And as a result of that, we're seeing legacy production be a larger share of total production from Texas than it used to be. And since older production tends to naturally decline less quickly, Lo and behold, here's a source that's of why Texas production continues to exceed market expectations because the natural decline rates have actually, they're lower than they used to be. Yeah. And, and that it's not obvious when people look at high level statistics, but that's the benefit of taking it apart from a Rick Pulse model's perspective. 
That is super interesting. So um, just so, so um, is there a particular place in the website that um, our listeners can find you or should we just send them to the overall website and, and it'll be, it'll be there. Let's go to the overall website for now. We are going to be creating an economist corner or chief economist section that'll have house a lot of this content, but this is work in progress as we continue to roll it out. Uh, right now, this is really the first of the articles that I've put out, the economic analysis for Texago, quarterly outlook, again, with a strong Texas flavor to it, and you know, the, the chart book and other charts of the week coming soon. Okay. Awesome. We are so thrilled to talk to you again. Yeah, it's good That's to get you back on the thank show, you. Dr. Foreman, and uh, good to have you soon down here in the great state of Texas, and looking forward to what you guys put out, produce, and obviously a little more Texas bias is never bad. And oh, oh, I meant to tell you, you no longer have to say you all, just y'all, just straight y'all. So you can just, <laughs> you said you all, you can just, you can just drop that to y'all when you can come on, come on down here. I, I wasn't even aware. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Foreman. It's good to have you back on. Great seeing you all. Take care. Okay, Dr. Wald, where will you be this week? This week, I will be on investing.com with my weekly column. And I am also going to be on um, TD Ameritrade uh, television on Wednesday, I think, uh, in the afternoon for their oil and gas panel. Okay, cool. I will be on Inside the War Room as always. And with that, we'll be back next week or week after somewhere and there we get some travel coming up so we'll be back soon how about that yes we'll we will be back faster than the chinese economy how about that awesome <laughs> <laughs> everyone then bye